Okay, there's two parts uh, this morning. The first part is we gotta lay the foundation, and then the second part is reflecting on, on that. So, to lay the foundation. So, in Isaiah chapter six, um, so in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, in chapter six, he has this vision of heaven. And so he's taken up into heaven to have this vision where he enters into this, he calls it like this great temple. And inside this great temple, the king, God, is seated on his throne. So Isaiah understands that this, this person that he's seeing is God himself. And he's so big, it says that, that the trail of his garments, right? So, so the, the robe that he's wearing, the trail of his garment fills the temple, right? So this, this God is massive, is huge. And, and Isaiah is, is, is in front of this God. And he realizes when he sees this God first, he sees uh, that it's not just God, but that there are angels flying next to this, this God, many angels, and, and they're flying and they're, they have six wings and they're, they're in the presence of the all holy God. So they're, they're like covering themselves well, with two of the angels or with two of their wings, they're covering their faces and with two of their wings, uh, two more of their wings, they're covering their feet. And, and with the other two, they're using them to fly next to God. And as they are next to God, they just keep calling out to each other back and forth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The song actually that we sing at mass. Right? It's the song that they sing in heaven as they worship God on his throne in the temple. Right? This is who God is. And Isaiah, in this moment, as he sees God's holiness, he recognizes like, oh, shoot, I'm a sinful man and I come from a sinful people. And, and I see God and, and nobody sees God and lives. And, and so he, he, he prays for, for mercy. He prays for, for God to somehow look upon him. And, and the Lord cleanses him and purifies him and makes him worthy to stand in his presence. Okay, so, so that's, that's God in the Old Testament. And then in the very last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, John, the author, has another vision of heaven in chapter four and five. And he peeks into heaven. And in this vision, he sees something very similar to what Isaiah saw. God sitting on his throne with the angels and, and all of the elders, the, the holy men and women who have, who have worshipped and remained faithful to God throughout history, bowing down before him and just crying out the same thing. Holy, holy, holy are you. Holy is the Lord God of hosts. Worthy are you, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. And it says that as they did this, they, they bowed, bowed down before him. And there were angels uh, blowing trumpets. And as they blew the trumpets, it says that the entire earth shook with gladness, that, that God's glory was revealed to them, right? So this, this is who we, as this is who our Jewish uh, uh, ancestors believe as God. This is who we as Christians believe as God, that, that God is so much bigger than us and that he is all holy and all powerful and to be in his presence is a truly awesome sight. That's who we believe he is. So now, that God we believe as Christians, that God comes down to earth and he takes on human flesh so that that God is now the person of Jesus. This is who we believe that Jesus is, that he is the great I am, the all holy God who stands in front of us. That's who he is. And, and then how does, how does he come? He comes miraculously, right? Of course, we know this, that he comes by way of the Virgin Mary, this miraculous conception. Uh, he, it's even a miracle that he takes on our human flesh, that, that he lowers himself to seem like he's, he's limited, like you and I are limited. It's miraculous. And yet at the same time, we believe that this is, this is who he is, that he's God. And so then what happens? We can look in the gospels and we can see how did people approach Jesus? 
Jesus, who is God? How did they approach him? Well, well, you can think, think of the different Bible stories that you know. How did they approach him? Well, so many times when they sort of get this insight of who he is, although maybe they don't perfectly understand who he is, but when they get like a little insight of like, okay, there's, there's someone incredible here. What, what happens? They fall to their knees. What happens? They lie down prostrate in worship of him, recognizing his greatness. Right? You, wouldn't, you wouldn't fall down to your knees before any other human being. You wouldn't, you wouldn't worship on your face on any other human being. But yet they do this with Jesus. They, they, when they, they hear that he's passing by, what do they do? They cry out to him, knowing that he's the only one that can do anything for them. They beg him for mercy. They beg him for healing. They come up to him and they're just like, Lord, no one else can do this, but I know that you can. And so on my knees before you in worship and adoration, I'm begging you to heal me, to bring relief to my suffering, to, to do something for me, right? This is how they approach him. Remember the, the lady, right? The, the lady in, in the house of the Pharisee, she comes before him as they're eating a meal and she's so inspired, she's so grateful to be in his presence that she, she bathes his feet with her tears because she, she recognizes she's in the presence of someone who is so great, so great that words can't fully describe it. And so she just cries and she weeps and she bathes his, teat with, his feet with her tears and she wipes his feet with her long hair. This, this is how people approach Jesus. Generally speaking, in awe and wonder as they ask, like, who is this? He, he, controls, he controls illness. He controls death. He controls the weather. Who is this that we're standing in front of, that we're in his presence? Other people do what? We, well, we know when, when he was born that the Magi come from a long distance away, like hundreds of miles away. They come from a long distance just to see him. And when they see him, they offer him incredibly valuable gifts. Because they understand that this newborn baby is not just any ordinary baby, but he's someone incredible. There's this sense in the scriptures that people always know, those who have faith in him, always know where he is, and they're always traveling. So like, where, where is he? We gotta be in his presence. Like, I gotta be there with him because, because this is Jesus. Like, this is the one who's been promised throughout history. Like, I gotta, and, and as I come, I'm gonna bring my friends with me, and, and sometimes my friends need healing, right? Remember the people that, that lower their friend down through the roof? They break open the roof of this, this house, and they lower their friend down just so that Jesus can heal him. They make sacrifices. They, they leave everything to follow after him. Like This is how people with faith relate to Jesus or approach Jesus. Why? Because they understand God has visited his people. And so because of this, because of who Jesus is, I just can't imagine not being in his presence. I can't imagine not wanting to be with him. And I can't imagine not falling on my knees or falling on my face to worship him because this is the all-holy God. Those who have faith do this. We see also that there are people in the Gospels who don't have faith, people who don't believe in him. How do they approach Jesus? Well, they reject him. They mock him. They persecute him. They ultimately kill him. So there's this, this strong contrast in the Gospels of those who have faith and the response that they give of like, I can't imagine not being with him. I can't imagine not like finding out where he is and coming before him to worship him, to beg him for healing, to, to, to get whatever I can from him because this is God himself who has come to visit us. And then those who don't have faith, who are just like, get rid of him. We can't have this guy in our presence. Right, so so that's, that's incredibly important. Okay, so now, now this Jesus at the Last Supper what does he do? 
right? So remember, we have to remember Jesus is the all-holy God who takes on flesh. And at the Last Supper, he takes bread and he says what? This is my body. And then he takes the chalice and he says, this is the chalice of my blood. This is what he says. For us as Christians, and and not just for us as Catholic Christians, but we have to understand that for the first 1,500 years of Christianity, basically all Christians understood that what Jesus was saying was the truth. That basically, like, very few, if any, Christians questioned what Jesus was saying, whether he was speaking symbolically or representationally or whether he was speaking truly. They all understood that when he says this, that the bread really does change into his body and his blood so that ultimately they could fulfill what he says in our gospel passage today, right? Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And so it's at the Last Supper that Jesus takes the bread and the wine and he changes it into his body and blood, even though they still look and smell and taste and feel like bread and wine. There's a change, a real change that has taken place so that there's no more bread and there's no more wine. But instead, Jesus, who is the all-holy God, has changed this bread and the wine into his body and his blood, into his living body, into his living blood. So that what? Now, God's presence, his real presence, is here at the Last Supper. And for us as Catholic Christians, again, for the first 1,500 years, we have believed that every time we come to Mass, that this is what takes place. That God's grace is so powerful that we're transported in time to that moment where when the priest says the words that Jesus said at the Last Supper, the bread and the wine are truly changed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. There's a big word that we use, it's called transubstantiation, which basically means everything that I've been explaining, that even though it still looks and smells and tastes and feels like bread and wine, it has truly changed so that there's no more bread and there's no more wine. So we can't even call it wine. The only way that we can call it bread is like if we capitalize the B and understand that this bread is the bread that Jesus is talking about, which is his flesh for the life of the world. That's the only way we can actually call it that. It's most fitting to call it the Holy Eucharist, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. And it's only for about the last 500 years that there's been any kind of debate about what goes on in our worship services. This is what's caused the Protestant Reformation. But for us as Catholic Christians, even from that moment, we have still and always will believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. How does it happen? It's a miracle a miracle of God's grace. Just like Jesus, who is God, can take on our human flesh by a miracle, so too we believe that that same power resides in his words and his hands working through the priest so that miraculously the bread and the wine can truly change. This is what we believe, what we teach as a Catholic church. Why does he do this? Because he loves. Because he wants to give himself to you. Because he wants you to be in his presence and he wants to be in your presence so that you can worship him, so that you can fulfill his command to have life, to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. This is why. Okay, that's the foundation, right? It's a really long foundation. Now we got to reflect. Just to simply ask the question, what if this is true? What if it's true that the bread and the wine really do change? 
that those who are in a state of grace when they come forward to receive Holy Communion truly receive the body and blood of Jesus. If this is true, can you think of anything more incredible? Can you think of anything more amazing? Anything more awe-inspiring that, that God, the God of the universe, who's the train of his garments fill this grand temple, that God comes down into a little piece of bread, into a little bit of wine, and changes it so that he can enter into your body and blood, into your soul. Isn't that incredible? Just to think for a minute, if that's true, how should we respond? Just think about it. Wouldn't it make sense if this is true, that this is the same Jesus as, as who walked this earth 2,000 years ago, if this is the same Jesus, wouldn't it make sense that our response to him would be the same response as what was back then? Wouldn't it make sense that our response would be to what? To fall to our knees, even to fall to our faces in worship, in adoration. Wouldn't it make sense for us to cry out to him to beg him for healing? Wouldn't it make sense for us to always be in awe and wonder at, oh my God, who is this? Wouldn't that make sense? At least if we have faith, that would make sense, right? To always say, where is he? I gotta be with him. Where is he? I gotta come and be in his presence because wherever he is, this is God and I want to be with him. Wouldn't that make sense? Okay, if that's the fitting response, let's now ask ourselves the question, what's the most common response to the Eucharist? How do people in our Catholic Christian church typically approach the Eucharist? You can think about this in your own life and I can think about this in my own life. How is my response to the Eucharist? How is your response to the Eucharist, if you believe this, if you have faith, right? If you don't have faith, it would make sense for you to just say like, no, this is stupid. I'm not coming here. But if you have faith in this, if you really believe this, how has your response been? I want to share with you what I see as a priest. And, and, and before I share with you, I, I want to share this, that I'm sharing what I see across the board, not just like in these three parishes. Uh, I'm sharing what I see across the board. And so if it feels like I'm going to mention some, I'm going to mention some specific things. And if it feels like I'm picking on you, I'm not. I'm sharing what I see in a general way. I know there are some things that I'm going to say that apply to people in this church, in our communities. And that's why I'm giving this disclaimer. And to begin with, I can share with you my, my own experience as a priest, that, that there are many times when I'm saying the words and I'm distracted. There are many times as a priest, when I'm saying the words, or, or every morning I have a chapel with the Blessed Sacrament in, in my house, and, and every morning I pray in there for an hour, but many days I'm distracted in my prayer. Many days I pick up my phone and I check to see if I've missed any messages. It's like four o'clock in the morning. I'm not going to miss any messages, right? But just in case. Right? My response, I'm, I'm beginning by telling you this, my response as a priest to the presence of Jesus, who is God in the Eucharist, it's not the same as what's found in the Gospels. Too many times. Yes, there are times. I mean, I do believe this. There are times when, when I come before the Lord and I beg him for graces and I come before him and I'm reverent and I'm aware of his presence. But there are too many times in my life where I fall short of that standard. And what I see as a priest is, is that in my own life. But I also see this among other people, that the typical response to Jesus' presence in the Eucharist is indifference. 
The typical response, right, is what? Well, we have to constantly be begging people to come to Mass. And people have no problem missing Mass if, if they have something else going on that they think is, is more important or that they think is making Mass too inconvenient. We're constantly begging people to come. My experience is, is that people come forward to receive communion, but again, so many times I see people, again, and this is not just here, but, it, but in other places, I see people like talking to people as they're coming forward in the communion line, uh, looking around. I see people after communion. I see people just irreverently. I, see, I give communion to people with dirty, filthy hands. I'm placing the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus onto dirty, filthy hands. And I just think to myself, how did we get to this place? There are people who are living in a state of mortal sin and they have no regard for their state of mortal sin. They don't think that they need to repent of their sins and so they just come forward to receive Holy Communion without thinking about the body and blood of Jesus who they are receiving, God who is all pure. People who live in a state of mortal sin who have, they don't think the Eucharist is important enough so they don't repent of their sins. They don't change their lives. They don't amend their lives. People come to Mass and they're dressed immodestly. People come to Mass, they come late or when they come, they're just talking with each other. Right? And remember, I, I began all of this by sharing that I am a part of this, that I struggled myself. I failed to live up to the standard. But at the same time, right, as we look at how we as a community and perhaps how you as an individual and I as an individual fail to live up to the standard, we have to sort of ask ourselves the question without judgment. How did we get to this place? And we're going to talk more about this next week. But just to begin asking, like, how in the world did I get to a place where I think it's okay that I willingly distract myself in the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist? How did we get to a place where you think it's okay to be irreverent in a church? How did we get to a place where you think it's okay to receive communion in a state of mortal sin? Or how did you get to a place where you think it's okay that you just don't receive communion as long as you come to Mass? Now, there is, there's merit to that, sure, but, but like, how did we get to this place? And again, without judgment, to just let ourselves be curious and wonder what happened. And we can come up with some possible solutions, right? And we'll talk about these next week, about how perhaps priests, many priests have just taught falsely or taught wrongly. How many priests, there's scandals in the church, and that diminishes our faith. We can talk about how, how there are priests that just rush through the Eucharistic prayer, and so they actually they, they, they lose the real sense of mystery that's taking place at the altar. We can talk about that. We can also talk about how, how perhaps you're just a little stubborn, I'm a little stubborn. We could talk about how perhaps maybe you and I are just a little lazy, and so we don't actually want to, to make the effort to purify our lives. We can talk about how perhaps maybe you don't have faith. We can talk about those things, but, but just to let yourself be curious and ask the question, and then to follow that up with another question, and this will be the last question. Is it possible to get better is it possible for you and for me to grow in our devotion to Jesus in the Eucharist? Is it possible for you and for me to grow in our reverence before the Lord? Understanding, by God's grace, understanding more fully what it is that goes on here at Mass. And as we grow and as we improve in our reverence, in our living, our awareness of who Jesus is and what he's giving us in the Eucharist, as we do that, what can happen? Maybe we can like come alive in our faith in a new way. And I know that, that there are many of you in this church that are alive in your faith, 
But the thing is this, that the Lord reveals to us that he always has more for us. And so to let yourself just wonder about this, to wonder about the incredible gift of the Eucharist, to wonder about your response, whether it's been good or whether it's been poor or whether it fluctuates, and then to wonder, but how can I grow more so that I can grow to love Jesus more, especially and above all, in his body, in his blood, in the Holy Eucharist?